This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. A major newspaper's editorial board called for the criminal prosecution of former President Donald J. Trump. This is a major, major development. As much as most of these papers lean left and detest the former president, there has always been the appearance of fair and balanced reporting and the need to be judicious in their call for the actual, physical human head of a major political party. But that is what's happening today with the story Boston Globes called to put Trump behind bars. The case for prosecuting Donald Trump, quote, saving American democracy for the long run requires a clear condemnation of the Trump presidency. That means making clear that no one is above the law. Norms in a democracy are only as good as our willingness to enforce them. After the precedent-busting, law-breaking presidency of Trump, Congress needs to pass new laws to constrain future officeholders. I mean, that's that's the case the globe has made in this series. Curbs on the pardon power, safeguards against nepotism, broadening the power of Congress to investigate the president, protections for whistleblowers, requirements that presidents make financial disclosures to root out conflicts of interest. Quote, all of that is crucial to protect Americans against a repeat of the last four years. The editorial board for the Boston Globe made the case this week for holding Trump criminally accountable for his obstruction of justice efforts to overturn his election loss in Georgia, and inciting an insurrection on January 6th aimed at stopping the certification of Joe Biden's electoral win, arguing that prosecution was the only way to ensure future presidents conducted themselves honorably and lawfully. There is only one way left to restore deterrence and convey to future presidents that the rule of law applies to them, the board argued. The Justice Department must abandon two centuries of tradition by indicting and prosecuting Donald Trump for his conduct in office. That's not a recommendation made lightly, they wrote. The long-standing reluctance to prosecute former leaders is based on legitimate concerns about the justice system being used to settle political scores. But filing charges against former leaders is not a radical step either. Foreign democracies, including South Korea, Italy, and France, routinely manage to prosecute crooked former leaders without starting down a slippery slope to authoritarianism. President Nicolas Sarkozy of France was recently found guilty of bribery, a decade after his predecessor, Jacques Chirac, was convicted of corruption. France's democracy and its image around the world remained intact. The modern U.S. presidency under Trump was exposed as what they're calling a treasure map for an American tyrant. Quote, Donald Trump exposed the weaknesses in our system of government that could now be exploited by a corrupt leader with control of the White House. And so they have done this six-part series that sort of methodically lays out six major reforms and actions that the U.S. government could enact now. Things that the Trump experience shows we need before somebody else like that gets back into the presidency in order to make sure this doesn't happen to us again or worse. This call from the Boston Globe also mirrors what I've been saying on Maya Culpa, that the time has come for Democrats, the left, whoever has a stake in preserving our democracy from forces of MAGA insanity, take off the fucking gloves and fight back. Looks like Boston answered the first call. Don't say it to my face, you fucking idiot! But let's be honest, folks. The most pressing news since the Donald's embarrassing, disheveled North Carolina speech last weekend 
has been whether or not the former president was wearing Depends undergarments or some other gargantuan-sized adult diaper. Hashtag diaper gone is trending on Twitter. And for very good reason. It has long been reputed, although I cannot confirm it to be true, that Trump wears a diaper. The term diaper don has once again become a number one trending topic on Twitter. But of the many times I saw Trump in various states of undress, they were always with a man in his jockeys. I wish to God I could confirm that he wore a diaper, but I can't. And no matter the news, I have always pledged to tell you the truth on this show. But that's my truth. Here's what everybody else is saying. This weekend's North Carolina uh, Republican convention saw the return of you-know-who to the political stage, but it wasn't covered by, you know, live by his former go-to network, Fox News. And the only takeaway, apparently, seems to be some conspiracy theory about his pants. So what is... Tell me about is... I, I didn't... I. I guess people are really concerned about these pants. And, Sonny, I'll go to you. Uh, What's up with the pants? Over the weekend, the weirdest news ever broken. That was that, oh, my God, did Donald Trump take to the stage wearing his pants backward? Brian Williams on his MSNBC 11th hour dedicated the closing on his Tuesday night show to wondering about the size of Trump's giant pants and defending that his reporting was not body shaming, but the actual size of the pants were indeed giant and could fit a family of four inside. One thing we did move on from too quickly was Trump's appearance at that state GOP wingding in North Carolina this past weekend. It was, after all, just three nights ago, in part because social media, which makes TV news types seem thoughtful and reflective, social media went wild over Trump's giant pants. Maybe with the help of some photoshopping, the first theory was they were on backwards. Mostly, though, they were giant. It's not body shaming as much as it is a straight-up observation that those pants could easily accommodate a family of four. Late-night television, who has largely had the spring off from Donald Trump, had a field day reporting on the former guy's front butt pants. Poor Mike Pence didn't know which end to kiss. It was very confusing. But then there was a detailed online investigation. And, you know, usually if you got this close to Trump's crotch, he'd pay you $130,000. But <laughs> turns out it was just a revolting illusion that resulted in these hilarious headlines. No, Trump didn't wear his pants backwards at that North Carolina rally. Actually, Trump was not wearing his pants backward at a weekend rally. Trump successfully wore pants correctly at rally. Well, good, good, good for you. Imagine being the fact checker that gets that call. Hey, Steve, I know it's uh, it's Saturday night, but can you check to see if uh, Ronald McDingbat has put his pants on backwards or not? On Saturday night, Fatty Krueger gave a speech to the North Carolina Republican Party where he said a bunch of stuff, but nobody paid attention because it looked like he wore his pants backwards. Okay, let's take a peek. Here he is leaving the podium, looking for a zipper and nothing. Either he shares a tailor with a Ken doll, or he spends so much time yanking stuff out of his keister, he just likes to have the zipper back there to make it easy. But it raised a lot of questions, like, how did he zip his pants, and 
Was his belt also on backwards? And how lucky are we that this man no longer has the nuclear code? Twitter sleuths have flooded the internet with derailed forensic outlines of the possibility that Trump may have in fact put his pants on backwards before the speech, pointing to the strange creases up front which could only have come from the former president getting a lap dance from a farm animal or in fact putting his trousers on in such haste that he hitched them up wrong. Even so, the question asks so many questions. How did this occur? Did he request they be put on backwards? Does he now have a body man whose sole job is to hitch him into trousers? Secrets, folks, secrets. Don't you hate pants? The fact that Trump has appeared diminished is the main headline. This is a vain man who would rather die than look foolish and unkept, yet appeared on a stage last weekend in a semi-stupor with or without a diaper and some very, very large pants. Here we are getting distracted again. It was the substance of Trump's remarks and his demeanor during that night's kickoff of the Big Lie Grievance Tour that led the New York Times to say that he appeared diminished. Ah, shit, we failed. Together we're going to defund our freedoms. The cancel culture, the defunding culture, the defending culture, and they defend the wrong things. Nobody ever thought what is happening would happen. We're going to take back our country and we're going to take it back at a level that is very, very good. You would have had a 1917 Spanish flu number. Shots or jabs, as they like to call it. I actually like the other word better. Somebody sits down in a chair. If you don't sit down lightly, the damn thing would collapse. I never went on my ass. Biden has halted wall construction, suspended removals and even removables, shredded our ground baking. I said, General, I might have to grab you, but I'm not going down under. I think that was a booby trap. Well, when did he do a deal? Oh, did he do another deal? Did he? They're going through every deal, every deal I've ever done. I am not the one trying to undermine American democracy. I'm the one that's trying to save it. I have been asking many of my guests since his assertion that he would be reinstated as president if Trump's appearance is a harbinger of a larger mental breakdown. But this, folks, plus his rather unintelligible mutterings, even for Trump, might spell a larger problem for the GOP. The man they are clinging to, despite being in possession of a fearsome and fanatic base, is incapacitated and fucking insane. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is none other than the Reverend Al Sharpton. As a lifelong New Yorker, he has been a fixture of the city and its often combustible politics for decades. His life is one that has been given activism, and he has led marches countless times across the city, especially during the 1980s and 1990s, as the city roiled with racial tension. In 2004, he ran for the Democratic nomination for the President of the United States and was later a special advisor to Barack Obama. As founder of the National Action Network, Sharpton has of late taken his message and his politics national, 
focusing on issues like voter rights and the recent assault on democracy in states like Georgia. You can see the Reverend every Sunday on MSNBC's Politics Nation, which he has hosted for the past decade. But there is one more thing about the Reverend, that is how his biography and celebrity have crossed with that of Donald Trump over the years in New York City. Despite hailing from vastly different circumstances, the two have grown up together in the same tabloid world. And this allows Sharpton a unique perspective on Trump. Few can say that they have. He has literally watched the former president grow into the incalculably evil and potentially insane individual from a dozen different versions he knew along the way. Whether or not this is the real Trump right now, or just another version, time will tell. But Reverend Al certainly has a few things to say on the subject. So let's listen now to that conversation. Reverend, as a lifelong New Yorker, you've seen the ugliness of Donald Trump for several decades now. In this latest incarnation, where he believes that he'll be reinstated, do you believe he's lost his mind, or is he playing some sort of a deeper game with us? It's hard to trust that what you see with him is what you get. Uh, what we see is a guy that seems to have uh, just become deranged and total, totally oblivious from reality. But having seen him play act for 40 years, you wonder, is he playing a game like the old mobsters that try to duck the feds by acting as if they really are off of it so they conduct some criminal prosecution or whether he's really lost it. He, he, he is acting as if he's going to be reinstated. Is this some game around the investigations or does he really delude himself like that? It is really hard to tell when you've uh, seen Trump uh, who has played, he was wealthier than he was, that he was more socially uh, 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 polished than he was. I mean, he has never been authentic to what he projected. So I want to say he's finally really lost it, but you can't trust it. You just never know what he No, you never do. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but recently going around Twitter was a photo of Donald Trump with um, his pants that were completely wrinkled in the front. You would looks like he put it into a um, into a garbage bag before he actually put them on to go out on stage at this North Carolina rally, like in a glad bag or something like that, and then took them out right before. I've never. Now, remember, I was with Donald for over a decade, and now with all the time that's gone on with the presidency, it would be almost a decade and a half. One thing he was always fastidious about was his appearance and his right. suits. And he would have Keith sit there, and if there was hair on the side, they would constantly brush it off before rallies or what have you. I've never seen him look more disheveled in my entire life than he did when he got up there. And as disheveled as he looked, his communication skills and the speech that he gave to this North Carolina rally was more disheveled than even his pants. Did you see that? That's why I'm, I'm wondering if he has finally began to lose it or whether this is a great act. Because he never, in the years I've known him, he was always the guy that wanted every strand of hair in, in place. He couldn't 
hardly pass a mirror without looking at his own reflection. I mean, he was vain to the point of that. Even in his bombastic kind of delivery, there was a pattern to his speaking, and you knew that he was trying to make a point. When I watched him uh, in North Carolina, looking totally disheveled, both in terms of his wardrobe and the incoherence of his speech, it was like, even though he would be all over the place in certain speeches, you knew he wanted to hit these two or three points. He always had a scheme in mind. There was no scheme in mind at, in North Carolina. It was like a rambling old man just just saying some things. It was almost like an old singer singing songs and he forgot the lyrics. And I'm beginning to wonder, is he losing it or is he having one of his last well-orchestrated acts? Because it's totally not the Donald Trump that I'm used to, even though I've been on adversarial sides and socially friendly uh, during the last 40 years. He's always been more meticulous than what we're seeing. Because you're right about that. What he would do is he would take his piece of paper, he would script something out. Now, not written out like a inaugurational um, address to the country or uh, something like that. He would have his bullet points. And while you may not agree with what's coming out of his mouth, right? most people don't, at least those that are listening to this show, but at least you're right. He stayed on point. There was a message. There was no message here. The message right. here was, as you said, the ramblings of like what, and I spoke to Joy Reid about this on my last podcast, it was. It's almost to me as if he's taking a playbook out of the Chin uh, Gigante's uh, playbook of walking <laughs> around downtown, right in Greenwich Village, with his bathrobe and drooling and just mumbling incoherent statements to himself. That's what. That's and you know I don't feel sorry for Donald. I know I should, and I felt angry at myself while watching the speech because I. I should have felt sorry for a man who's standing up there in front of an audience rambling nonsense that's incoherent. It's just babble bullshit, to be honest with you. But I didn't. I was like, you know what? Good. Good for him. I'm glad that he makes no sense because when he does make sense, he's attracting an audience that neither you and I, we care for. He's, he's attracting that white supremacist, racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic group that for some unknown reason just follows him, you know, to the depths of the dumpster. And, and you know, for any human being, you don't want to see their demise. But, you know, Donald Trump is not moral or immoral. He's amoral. He doesn't care about anything but Donald Trump. And I think that when you have somebody that is all of the things that you said, uh, and he has an audience of that, and he has no problem with what the effects may be, when he instigated and incited January 6th, I think what people don't understand is when they talked about the danger of the people in the Senate, the danger of the people in the House of Representatives that were there to certify the Electoral College vote, even his own vice president in danger, and that they came that close, and then, thank God that uh, uh, the Capitol Police was able to, to, to save them. He does not care. I mean, Donald Trump does not care. 
and you're appealing to someone's sensitivity that doesn't have those sensitivities. And I think that it is important that people understand the psyche of him. I don't think when, when we're hearing about these investigations and possible prosecution, I don't think he cares, but maybe one or two members of his family, as long as he is winning, as long as he's ahead, as long as he is in positions of power and influence, the rest are casualties to the cause. And the cause is Donald Trump. Now, you know, like I said, I spoke to um, Joy Reid about this just the other day. It's my assertion that he will use this opportunity to cop an insanity plea and thus present himself from being indicted on the grounds that he's mentally unfit to stand trial. I've, I've said that on whether it was Ari Melber, I said it on Allison Camrata, I said it to Joy Reid. But as much as, you know, as he fears sounding and looking like a loser, and again, you know him for four decades, right? His bigger fear is prison in and even worse than that, losing his eponymous company, losing his money. But prison is definitely one of them. Discuss this with me and my listeners. No, I, I think that uh, if Donald Trump, first of all, you have to remember the gangsters of yesteryear that used to do those, you know, act in ways that would, uh, they could avoid prosecution. One or two of them uh, were represented by his mentor, Roy Cohen. So we're not, you when, when Michael... Cohen says this, he's not far-fetched when you realize he grew up in that era mentioned by the people that had those kinds of strategies. He would never, ever be able to live with himself talking about he was going to be in a, in a six-by-six cell. That, that He would do anything not to do that. And to lose the autonomy of his corporation. So I think that he is not above or beneath doing whatever he had to do to avoid that at any risk. And I think what people don't understand, and, and certainly you understand it better than most, is that he knows better than any of us the things he has done. So when these investigations become more intense and the screws come tighten, he knows the possibilities that they may uncover better than anyone. So he must be going through every strategy in the book because he knows what they may come up with. He doesn't know what they have, but he knows what they may come up with. So if that means I can wrinkle my pants and talk a little incoherent and embarrass myself for a few months to get by this until I find out what they got, I'm willing to do that. Because he knows what they may find out, but he hopes they don't find out. But just in case. He better build up a strategy. Right. And he knows that somebody like Mark Pomerantz or now with um, Tish James joining Cyrus Vance in this investigation, there is nothing that they don't know. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. Make sure to download last Thursday's episode where Jordan is joined by celebrated psychologist, economist, and Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. 
And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Like the April 20th episode that tells the insane and heartless story of forced organ trafficking from a member of the Canadian Parliament. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now remember, Donald took some very serious plays out of the Roy Cohn playbook, first and foremost, Never to have your fingerprints on anything, which is why Donald never had an email address at the Trump Organization. If you wanted to send something to Donald, you would basically send it to Rona Graff, someone who you know very well, right? And if it wasn't Rona, you would send it to whoever your contact was. That would be me. It would be a guy named George, Alan, right? Uh, Jason, whoever that was that was there. And we would bring in the email to him, right? We'd print it out and bring it to him for review and response. Now, the problem with that is you're going to start to see a pattern, And this, I'm sure, is something that both the DA and the attorney general are looking at. It's the pattern of his conduct and the ultimate result. And that's not something that he can escape from. And he knows it. And I believe that there's maybe a combination between what both of us have been saying. I do believe some of this is his theatrics, right? I do believe that. But I also believe that the pressure and the stress of all of this, knowing that it's just a matter of time before the shit hits the proverbial fan, then I think he's beginning to lose it. I think lack of sleep, you could see it almost in his walk. You could see it in his demeanor. You could see it in his, uh, in his body language. I think it's a combination of both. I think you're right. I think that clearly he is uh, one that has the capacity to play out the role from his uh, mentorship of Roy Cohn. But I also think that he has never been under such intense scrutiny and pressure in his life. And this is not a game anymore. He has sat there 40 years having to do more work than he's ever done because he couldn't set his own schedule, set his own time. His autonomy uh, just was not conducive to being president. And now he runs into all of this intense pressure from after the pandemic of his legal life, that has worn him down. And even when you look at him and say, is he acting? Certain things like when he walks away on to a plane or something and you get glimpses of that, and he's starting to look like an older, broken man. A lot of that, I think, is, wait a minute, some of this is stressing him out. Because he's not used to, he's used to having fights with regulators and investigators where it's like a sword fight, a, a, a 
boxing match. You throw a punch, I throw a punch. He's not used to the whole house getting ready to come down on him. That's the kind of pressure that he's not been mentored for and prepared for. And I think that under that is half acting, but half of it is that he's knowing that the roof may fall in and he's beginning to age under that kind of stress. Yeah, but remember, over the course of my tenure with Trump, most of the fights that we had were all one-sided. We always fought, not with people like the district attorney or the attorney general or, you know, um, the now Biden administration and congressmen. It was always with the average Joe, the average Joe or Jane that he was looking to screw out of a couple of dollars here or there. Of course, and they knew that they couldn't withstand a barrage of litigation and so they generally walked away and that just empowered him to keep believing that he was the teflon don that he was invincible and now he's up against as you so eloquently put it he's up against forces that he has never had to contend with before and these forces are stronger than he they're more they're better equipped they have better lawyers than than he no no real lawyer wants to take on donald trump as a client first and foremost like i said he's a racist sexist nobody wants to be affiliated to that on top of that you know he's not going to pay you he's going to stiff you one way or the other whether it's the first bill the second or the very last i'm in litigation with him you know right now over over legal fees that he put me into and so far, it looks like we're doing pretty good in the courts, and we'll find out relatively soon what happens. But we've always fought with people that were not capable of fighting Trump. It's the other way now. So you're right. He looks completely disheveled and distraught. The fact is that not only was it one-sided fights, Donald Trump was used to picking his fights, not that his fight was going to pick him. And he's in the very unusual, there's no man's land now, where the, he's in several fights and several levels of investigation that he didn't pick the fight. And he didn't pick the opposition. So now he looks at a guy that he wants to do a real estate deal or a deal with a casino or a deal with entertainment in his casino. He picked what he wanted to do. He assessed this guy. And he always assessed people that he felt he could beat, outsmart, undermine, get something on. He can't pick these investigators. He can't pick these prosecutors. Nor can he stop them. And he's not used to that kind of fight. He's in no man's land. Yes, he is, Rev. Well, and Rev, the Democrats' response to four years of Donald Trump seemed to partially hinge on this idea of return to normal. But there is an obvious push by the GOP to prevent that from happening. Nothing is normal at the moment from the assault on voting rights to the infiltration of the GOP by the Proud Boys and other extremist groups at the state and local levels as they run for seats in the state legislature and push their agenda. How do Democrats push back against this rising tide? Counting on people wanting a more rational country now seems to be just like wishful thinking. Discuss this with me. I think that what Democrats must do is they must appeal to the everyday guy that we this is not about politics. This is about restoring your rights and bringing us back after a 
devastating pandemic that brought almost 600,000 Americans to their death and hundreds of thousands were infected. And we do not need these divisive games of disenfranchising voters and uh, dealing with uh, uh, racist and anti-Semitic and anti-Asian and, and, and anti-old people, all kinds of stuff, attacks. And I think that if they can come with let us stabilize the country and protect everybody, they counter this kind of radical right that's trying to change the voting laws and that is really trying to exploit the fears and emotions of people. Stability must be what the uh, Democrats are saying. They're not fighting for change. They're fighting to stabilize and protect people's rights. And the change they want is to change from the ways we were disrupted by the four years of Trump and the pandemic. So it's changed to the return of where the country was going, not changed to something that we don't know what that means. But Rev, how do we stabilize it? Because you have one side that is so adamantly opposed to this notion of stabilizing, bringing this country back to normalcy. And I'm referring to the GOP. How do we do it? You've almost got to sit down and say, this may not be the hand I want, but it was the hand I dealt. And you're going to have to just come to, uh, to you're going to have to defeat them. There is no way that you can make peace with people whose agenda is to destroy you. So since the GOP has said we want to destroy voting rights as we know it, we want to deal with the question of infrastructure in a way that we don't care if you've got bridges and highways in this country that are in disrepair, I mean, that the danger of people's lives, we don't care about it. You've got to defeat them. The GOP has got to be, the extreme part has got to be defeated. When you have, Michael, we're looking at the fact that a lady was removed from leadership in the House because she wouldn't go along with a lot. Now, this is a lady that I don't agree with her on most policies, most of votes I would disagree with. How do you strip someone of leadership for not lying? So you're dealing with people that you cannot make reason with. You're dealing with people that you're just going to have to beat them at the polls politically. I think it started in 20. It's got to continue in 22. So I guess really the notion that you're saying is we have to destroy Trumpism because that's exactly what is going on right now. I mean, once again, you nailed it right on the head. How does someone like Liz Cheney get removed and yet somebody like Josh Hawley or Matt Gates or, you know, or Ted Cruz or how, pick, pick a choose which moron is out there? making more and more bombastic, racist statements, behaving as if though this country is not a democracy, but an autocracy. And yet they managed to somehow believe, and we haven't seen it yet because we haven't gotten to the midterm elections and we're certainly years away from the general uh, election. But I believe that we really have to start Maybe a better, as a democratic group, we have to start better grassroots movement. We have to figure out each and every individual listening to this program should find a friend who is a Republican. Somebody, and I love your, your concept. Your concept, by the way, is exactly the same as what Mayor Ed Koch used to say. You don't have to agree with me eight out of 
12 times, right? Um, then you should vote for me if you do agree with me 8 out of 12. But if you agree with me 12 out of 12 times, you should seek a psychiatrist. We're never going to agree on everything. He had some way with words, you know, and you knew him quite well. Um, We need, we really need to understand that we're not going to agree on every single policy. We're not going to agree on every single idea. But we do have to agree with some of the most important ones, which is that every American has a right. And that whether you're black, you're brown, you're white, it makes no difference. If you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, it makes no difference. If you're male or female, it makes no difference. Every American is given inalienable rights by the Constitution, and they should be upheld for everyone. And that's not what Trumpism stands for. So I would implore everyone to speak to their friends. You don't have to agree on everything, but you just have to get along. you got to destroy You've got to eradicate Trumpism because it is built on trying to undermine, undercut, and undo the basic principles the country was built on. And though many of us feel we never got fully the enjoyment of what the country was built on, all of us ascribed to it and was fighting to get there. Trumpism is the reverse of that. And unless we all unite, even if we don't agree on every particular point, we have to fight for the right to disagree. With Trumpism, you don't even have the right to disagree. It's going toward an autocracy. It's going toward my way or no way. So I want to fight even with some of those on the right that are not addicted by Trumpism so that we can have this right-wing, left-wing fight. Because if Trumpism wins, there'll be no debate at all. They intend to silence even Republicans. What they did to Lynch, Lynch Cheney ought to tell you that it is their way or no way. It is not about the party. It's not about a two-party system. It's about the dictatorial uh, power of Donald Trump. And he doesn't want to be questioned. He wants to run. The United States of America, the way he ran the Trump Organization, he was the chairman of the board, the CEO, the CFO, in, in effect. He was the board of directors. He was everything. And that's how he tried to run the United States government, which is insane in concept. But if you know Donald Trump, it was how he operated all his life. It's true. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely true. And, you know, I believe that the only way to break the fever of this is to break the filibuster. How does Biden and his fellow Democrats deal with people like Senators Manchin and Senator Sinema, who seem to be the last holdouts and wish to occupy some ridiculous middle ground where bipartisanship still exists? Because adding on to what you had just said, Donald Trump would have done the exact opposite. Donald Trump did do the exact opposite. He looked at the folks on the Democratic side and said, I don't give a rat's ass for any of you. And I don't right. want you to do, I don't want, I don't want anything from you other than you to agree with me. And if you don't, I don't care because I'm going to do everything through executive order anyway. So either come on the Trump train or get lost. And that's exactly what I believe that Joe Biden needs to do a little more of. Because if you're going to sit there and try now to appeal to people like Manchin or Cinema who have taken this very strong position in 
not going along with the democratic ideology or, or the, the message they're trying to relay. I don't know how anything is going to get done. I think that you've got to always try and reach out. And then when people don't want to reach back, then you've got to take a firm, hard stand to let people know that you're not going to be intimidated. People can't follow you if you are not going to stand up for something and they know that you have backbone. And I think that uh, Joe Biden was correct to extend the olive branch, but there comes a point where your kindness is appearing as weakness, even to your own supporters and followers, and they cannot come off as weak. You will never, ever uh, gain anything fighting Trumpism and Donald Trump appearing weak, because Donald Trump looks at weakness like a Sunday uh, with a cherry on top at, at a local ice cream bar. He will eat you alive. He lives off of that. And I think that there's the difference between being uh, courteous and, and having uh, certain values and then being weak. We have gotten to the point where if we don't stand up to these people who are unapologetically racist and sexist and xenophobic and, and Islamophobic and all of that. If we don't stand up to them, they take that as weakness and will ram a truck all the way through our homes in terms of the homes of democracy, of democratic principles and all that. You know, one of the biggest problems, Michael, and, 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 and you and I have talked about this uh, before, is that it's hard for them to conceive of people that don't think like them in terms of uh, people that are decent, respectable, have certain values. So they can't imagine people that don't care about other human beings. Donald Trump and that crowd do not care. I mean, people need to understand he does not care about you. When you have a guy that would sit with Woodward and tell him on tape, yeah, they told me this could be a pandemic and it could get out of hand, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to panic the American people. The interpretation is, I don't care if it gets out of hand. It doesn't fit my political agenda right now. Anybody else with our values would say, well, wait a minute. If there's possible danger, let's put politics aside here. People could die. He doesn't think like that. You can't fight a guy that does not think like you and think that, well, if I do this, you'll get the message. He's not looking for the message. He's looking to devour you. Yes. Yes, I've often said the same exact thing, where he, Donald Trump cares for no one or anything other than himself, and that's the true definition of a narcissistic sociopath, something I talked about a lot in my book, you know, Disloyal. Yeah. The weather's getting warmer, and I'm amped to start grilling again. One of the things I'm always worried about is how do I know when the meat is ready, and I'm always praying it's not overcooked. This new product I came across makes sure I won't mess it up and tells me exactly when it's ready to come off the grill. Meter is a sleek Bluetooth meat thermometer that keeps an eye on your food and lets you know when it's ready to eat. It gives you a countdown for the cook so you know how many more road sodas you can sip before you have to get back to the grill. Super simple, super easy, with perfect results. I can't tell you how many steaks I've ruined from overcooking, but it's a lot. And there's nothing more traumatic than seeing that beautiful cut of meat you bought reduced to shoe leather. 
Well, not anymore. With meter, it's perfect steaks every time. And my wife thinks I'm some kind of super chef now. It can be used in a grill, a smoker, oven, sous vide, cooking, air fryer, rotisserie, literally anywhere. And comes with cloud service with limitless range so you can still monitor the barbecue while hanging at your neighbors or running to the store. Monitor your steaks or chicken in the app so this way you can kick back, relax, and pretend you're doing a whole lot more. This is the perfect tool to be a grill master and to buy for Father's Day if you haven't been shopping. Get 10% off with code COHEN when you shop at Meter.com. Again, get 10% off with code COHEN at Meter.com. That's M-E-A-T-E-R.com. It's barbecue season, folks, so let's get grilling. Word of warning for all you Vax warriors out there. Getting your COVID-19 vaccine is something to celebrate, but think before posting a picture of your vaccine card on social media. It contains personal information like your name and birth date that can be used by cyber criminals to steal your identity. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals around the world keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Norton 360 with LifeLock gives you comprehensive protection for devices, online privacy, and identity. Device security blocks cybercriminals from stealing information. VPN with bankrate encryption helps keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at norton.com slash Cohen. For example, let's just go to Mitch McConnell for a second. Mitch McConnell, on the day after Joe Biden's inauguration, got up and basically came straight out and said, there's nothing that Joe Biden can do that I am going to go along with. And my goal is to stop him from accomplishing anything. Now, that to me sounds like sounds like a fight. And so, again, I don't understand why this administration is not taking the fight to the Republicans when there's so much meat on the bone here. Let's just start with Donald Trump and Bill Barr's weaponization of the Justice Department to go after multiple people, myself included. Let's talk about the insurrection on January 6th and now their refusal to allow a commission to go forward. They have to start thinking a little bit more like Donald. I hate to say it. They have to care less about upsetting those GOP members that don't agree with their ideology. I believe that there should be a commission set up. Why, why not? I'm sure both Republican and Democrat representatives who were there in the building that day would like to know the answer. I saw on television that they actually have some Republican um, representative who allegedly communicated with a bunch of the insurrectionists, as well as opened up one of the doors for them to obtain access to the Capitol. How could you not, as an American, 
How could you not want to know what the fuck was really going on here? Sorry, Rev. I know you get angry at me. I know Rev for 22 years. He always gets mad, and I'm going to try to control myself. But it really bothers me. You put representatives, you put anyone's life in jeopardy. How could there not be an investigation? And what is Merrick Garland doing? Now, when you look at the fact, there's two major things in what you just said. One is they put people in physical danger. The senators, the congresspeople, their staff. We're not talking about potential danger, real danger. Those people went there and had they caught some of them, they would have been physically harmed. There's no question about that, including the vice president of the United States, who was Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's vice president. That's one. But secondly, let's not forget, Michael, this strategic date of January 6th, they were not calling a march on Washington like I call or any other person right or left call. They called that day because that was the day they were certifying the Electoral College vote to make Joe Biden president, which means they came with the express purpose to stop the certification of the will of the American vote. Any other country that we'd watch that, we would say that was an attempted coup d'etat to stop the succession of government the way it was set. Therefore, if you're dealing with an outright attempt for a coup d'etat and physical danger, how do you not have a commission investigate that? How do you act like that might have been a day of tourists? You are obligated that if you couldn't get it through the Congress, then you do it as the presidential order. You do it any way you want. You're dealing with the attempt to overthrow the government. That's what they came. That was the reason they chose that day. That wasn't an arbitrary date. And you've got to deal with it like that. You've got to bring those people to justice. And you've got to deal with those who instigated it, incited it, including the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. And let's look at facts. You know, I always say this. Facts matter. And since facts matter, we've seen a multitude of police officers during that specific day injured and killed. That in and of itself should be more than enough to have this commission immediately impaneled. And I, I... I get so angry when I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about the likes of the Mitch McConnells or the Josh Hawley's or the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the rest of these these lunatics. There's no other way to put it. You know, I'm trying to control myself, you know, with my vernacular here, but they're they're just lunatics. How could you not want to know when the entire democracy, our constitution is at stake? Because here's what we know, and I've said this so many times, sometimes it gets boring repeating it, but it's necessary. Donald Trump, as you know, never wanted to be president of the United States. This whole this whole campaign started out, it was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of politics. And then things started to catch on. That sort of popularist, racist banter by him got him to the front page by the media, and he started to rise, and somehow or another, he ends up pulling it off. But what he really decided was that he's better than just being president of the United States, despite the fact he has zero qualifications in order to be the president. 
He didn't really want to be president. He wanted to be an autocrat. He wanted to be a dictator or a monarch. Any one of the three would do for him. And that's why early on, when he started having um, people chanting about 12 more years, right? 16 more years, 20 more years. They were already horsing around with MAGA flags going back to 2026, 2036. I mean, you know, he just kept going on and on and on and enjoying the roar of the of the crowd, because as you know as well, Donald Trump needs the adulation of the crowd the way we need oxygen to breathe. Without it, he feels like the loser that he is, and his fragile ego couldn't permit it. First of all, there's nothing in his background that shows an appreciation for cooperation and working with anyone. He was raised in this narcissistic, autocratic kind of behavior. And when he found himself uh, totally to his surprise as president of the United States, he just transferred how he always operated with his businesses, with his whole life, into now I'm going to do this for the country. He knows no other way. I've been involved in, in, in civil rights and civil life the last four decades in New York and around the country, but in New York like he and uh, uh, has been. He never engaged in the process of trying to do something uh, to help the city. He never worked with political parties, Republican and Democrat. It was always the Trump way, period, the Trump business deal, the Trump glorification of this, that, or the other. That's what he brought to the White House. So you are absolutely right. His goal was then to be the autocrat or a monarch since he ended up being president. He was not going to adjust. I think what a, a mistake that some made was that, okay, he's president now. He will adjust to the presidency. He will learn how to fit in that jacket. He is not built like that. He had no intention of that. He wanted the presidency to fit into him and to expand the powers, forget the term limits, You now have to adjust to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not going to adjust to you, including the Constitution. And that's how he behaved. Yeah, because, first of all, he's never read the Constitution, despite the fact that somebody gave him a little book to walk around. The same is with the Bible. He's never read the Bible. He went once when he was baptized and he took a picture. And now he wants to hold himself out as somebody who understands God and religion. You may remember he sat up on on a podium and saying he's never asked God for forgiveness because he's never done anything wrong. That in and of itself should really have shown the American people, especially the Southern White Christian Coalition, that this man is godless, right? Now, we talked about process. I know people that have been in the ministry all their lives that would say, yes, I've had to ask God for forgiveness. In fact, I'm asking him for forgiveness now because we all sin all the time. I've never heard anybody Stand up there and say, I've never asked God for forgiveness. I don't have anything for forgiveness for. I've never heard anybody that claimed to be a practicing <laughs> churchgoer say, uh, what's your favorite scripture? All of them. I mean, if anybody didn't understand, he never read the Bible. There is nobody in the world that the whole Bible is their favorite scripture. Nobody in the world could say that, which showed he is oblivious to all of that. And when he then gets the fundamental Christian, the evangelicals following him, despite that 
that validates his narcissism and it validates his, I don't have to play by the rules. I just insulted the intelligence of these people and they're following me anyway. Yeah, but remember, everything with Donald Trump is transactional. And he had to, in his mind, have thought that shooting rubber bullets and gassing people while they were standing on the street there during that protest so he can get a picture of himself in front of the church or, you know, any other time that Donald had done something, it's always transactional, including, you know, the discussion with Woodward. It's all about what he can get out of the moment, how he thinks that he could appeal to some group that follows him, whether it's for money, like grifting, or whether it's going to be some other. Now, you'll remember this, because when I talk about this process that you were just referring to, and Donald being transactional, you may remember early on in the campaign, there was um, an issue that took place between one of the staffers in the campaign and your daughter, where um, that this staffer, you know, called her every word in the book that would basically get someone's teeth knocked out, right, from the N-word to the C-word across the board. And Donald, being transactional, comes to me and says, Michael, you're still friendly with Rev? I said, absolutely. Why would you ask that? So he goes, you know, that this is bad. I said, of course it's bad. And why is he not automatically fired? Well, you know, he's a really good speech writer. And what we can do is we can hide him. He won't be allowed to come to the office, but we'll still get his work papers and his work product because he's really competent. But, you know, this was really bad. This is going to stop, you know, anybody of color from voting for me. And I'm sitting, so he's, I'm like, okay. And he goes, I need you to get Rev to come to the office. And you were kind enough to come to the office. And I can't say that he apologized. Yours was probably the closest I have ever seen to a Donald Trump apology. Though, of course, it wasn't him apologizing for himself because he's never done anything wrong. It was asking you to accept this other guy's apology who's not even the person who apologized. Right. No, I I remember that. And uh, because I had known him so long and fought him on Central Park, then knew him with Don King fights, I knew that that it took everything in him to even go to you to ask me to come to the office because he felt that uh, I'm conceding enough for Sharp to even uh, come in and see me. Uh, but I wanted to show I was a bigger man than him. The, the guy had totally uh, uh, assaulted my daughter's character and uh, totally acted in a very mean-spirited way, and I did not want to match that. Uh, Otherwise, I would not have come because I didn't want to play that game. But uh, he couldn't even bring himself. A normal, decent human being, even with power and money, would say, look, I've got kids. I would want one of my kids to be attacked because they're not fair game in, in somebody's political or social activity. He couldn't even do that. Because he probably doesn't look at his kids the way I look at mine. All he could do is just hand around and throw the guy in front of the bus uh, that he wasn't going to throw in front of the bus, but to play to me like he was going to somehow reprimand the guy. And Al, me and you were cool, da, 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 da. But he knew good and well. I was there based on my relationship and, and respect for you and the fact that I did not want to appear as petty as him because if I didn't come... Then he would have said, see, I reached out to Sharpton. He's supposed to be a moral guy. He wouldn't even hear me out. We invited him 
over. So he'd have used it either way in his transactional kind of personality. I wasn't going to give him that. Yeah, he had to use our 20-year relationship. But let me ask you this, Rev. Mike Murphy was speaking yesterday about how the GOP's assault on voter rights happening across the country will actually backfire. That their legislation, while racist, ugly, and regressive, won't be enough to counter what will be a massive turnout against them for the midterms, and in the end, that they will have once again punched themselves out. Is this just wishful thinking, or will the Democrats finally be able to turn out voters in record numbers to counter this assault? I think that it is more than wishful thinking. I think that people vote, particularly people in communities that have been suppressed, oppressed, or denied. They vote out of pride. They're proud of something, Obama being first black president, or this, that, other are out of anger. And when you get them angry, they come out and they'll stand in line and they'll overcome any obstacle. These suppressive voting measures that they're putting in the state legislature are energizing more voters, Democratic, Black, Latino, progressive, white, LGBTQ, than we could ever do with our organizations or with the Democratic Party. Because what we try to give them in speeches and in sound bites, they are getting it straight from the Republicans on how they feel about them. We feel about you that you are second class citizens. That's why we're going to take your rights. It is definitely going to backfire. It is what helped elect Joe Biden in the first place. Joe, uh, Joe Biden won riding the wave of people saying we are not going to allow them to bring us back to 1950 America. And I'm going to say this, and I've said this even on my show, the best thing that happened to the Democrats in the last month was Donald Trump coming out of North Carolina. The more he appears, the more he will galvanize the anti-GOP vote. The Democrats ought to help facilitating him going on tour because even though he brings out their base, even though he energizes them, he energizes more of the Democrats that don't want to see us go back to that. And if you want to see for the first time uh, in, in history, the trend where the sitting party loses seats in the Congress and the Senate in midterm, not happen. Let Donald Trump stay out there and the Republicans will not have the advantage in the midterm because people will come out to vote against the return of Donald Trump. I hope he does a 30-city uh, tour. I hope we can get somebody to promote it because he will bring the vote out. Well, look, I, you know, I generally agree with you on most of that, but my biggest fear is apathy. And while, yes... People are enraged and people are talking about it and people are finally expressing themselves. My biggest fear is it's just not enough people to get to the polls. And I don't know why that is. And I believe that the midterm elections is going to be a good referendum to see whether you're right or I'm right. I certainly hope you are. I mean, I've never wanted to be wrong about something as much as you know, as much as I am right now. But my biggest fear is that they're just not going to get out to the polls and it's going to give people like, you know, 
Josh Hawley or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or Marjorie Taylor Greene or all of these, these just racist pigs. It's just not going to give enough to push them out of office, which is about the only way that we can destroy Trumpism. Well, I, I, I hear you, and I'm only hoping that you're wrong. And uh, uh, I think that we have got to really see the real threat. I think that, that those of us that want to see this country go forward in the way it was going, try, making some progress, have got to really make people understand they're not doing this for the Democrats. They're not doing this for Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Chuck Schumer. They're doing it for their kids. They're doing it for their mothers. We've got to personalize this. Everything that we believe in, everything that we stand for is at stake. These people are trying to destroy the principles of the country. Whether we ever lived up to the principles or not, they're trying to even destroy the very principles. When you have somebody running around like Trump and them just totally eradicating any kind of check and balance in the in the system of government, like you said, he never read the Constitution. When you got people in the Senate saying, I don't care if you present a bill that would cure some infirmity, I'm against it if you do it. We are at a place where you have no choice. If you love your families, you've got to come out and vote. And that's how we got to sell it. We've got to let people understand it's about them. It's personal. Well, hopefully that many of them are listening and hear it, Reverend Al, when he's saying it. This is about you. It's about your parents. It's about yourself, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, God willing, your great-grandchildren. That's who this is about. It's about human decency. I mean, the notion that Trump, when he walked out of office, that he snuck in a vaccination for himself, wouldn't even go on television to give a public service announcement like Presidents Obama did on Clinton and Bush. They did it because it's important. It's important so that human life doesn't get lost. And somebody, and I'm going to you know, parrot what Rev said earlier, that if somebody doesn't care about anything or anyone other than himself, it just, this, this is not the way that this country is going to progress forward. No way will it progress forward. And let me tell you, when you are dealing with a man that sees everyone as some pawn in his checkerboard, including his own followers, you have got to disarm that man. And the only way you can disarm him is you've got to come out and vote. And you've got to vote like you never voted before. you got to get your neighbors, your cousins, your relatives, your name, anybody, and say, we've got to vote. This man is fighting for his life. He is fighting to not go to jail. He is fighting to try and hold on to whatever he's got left of his businesses. And he sees his following as just pawns to protect the king if he was on a chessboard. And he will do any and everything. He is totally insensitive to the injuries and the hurt and the pain he causes other people. In fact, some people he enjoys watching them squirm. I love to grill. What man doesn't? But as someone unable to attend backyard barbecues because of my um, current arrangement with the federal government, I have to find a way to bring the party to me. 
That means throwing a bunch of Omaha steaks on the grill and making the neighbors drool with jealousy. It's also ridiculously easy. No need to even leave your home, which is good, because I can't. And Omaha delivers everything directly to me. I get restaurant-quality cuts from Omaha's ridiculously big get-out-and-grill assortment, which has enough meat in there to feed an army. I'm not kidding, folks. It was like something out of the Flintstones without the Brontosaurus burgers. But I really can't get enough of their 30-day-aged 10-ounce New York strip steaks, damn it. I'm hungry already. Now that summer's almost here, that means Father's Day is around the corner. So go to omahasteaks.com, type Cohen in the search bar, and order Dad the Get Out and Grill assortment. Right now, this package is 59% off and includes 20 entrees that he's guaranteed to love, like the ultra-juicy burgers, plum chicken breasts, desserts, sides, and four 10-ounce butcher-cut New York strips. These strips are aged for 30 days. And why is that important? Age equals tenderness. Plus, you get four free New York strip burgers with your order. It's selling out fast, so don't wait and definitely don't miss out. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's the best steak of your life. So visit omahasteaks.com, keyword Cohen, and get Dad the Get Out and Grill assortment, plus four free New York strip burgers and 59% off today. Send Dad more than just a gift. Send him an experience he'll love that he can share with you. Rev, in response to the news that Facebook, Instagram suspended Trump from their platforms until 2023 and will only permit his return if conditions permit, you tweeted the following, and I quote, How ironic. Facebook, of all organizations, is now officially doing more to protect our democracy and to thwart what FBI Director Ray has called the greatest domestic terrorism threat we face than the entire federal government. Discuss with my listeners what you meant here and what you believe to be currently lacking in the Biden administration's response to these issues. I think by Facebook saying that you have the right to free speech, but you do not have the right to disinformation uh, or misinformation and inciting uh, uh, behavior like we saw January 6th, which was criminal behavior. And therefore, since you are committed, Mr. Trump, uh, to misinformation and you're not above inciting criminal mob violence, we're going to withdraw our megaphone from you. Well, I think that the Biden administration cannot be in any way reluctant, too cautious to deal with criminal behavior. It is a crime to incite people to go to the capital of the United States and try to stop the results of an election being certified. That is a crime. It is a crime that ought to be treated as a crime. We cannot act as though we're dealing with people that are just engaged in free speech. They are engaged in criminal behavior when they are threatening and, in fact, causing the demise of people's lives. And it is incited by people that say we're going to have a wild time that instructs them to march. Let, let me say this, Michael, use this as an example. Last August, I called the march in Washington. Martin Luther King III and I called for 
people to come on the anniversary march of Washington, stand up about George Floyd and others. We had over 200,000 people. If I had said we're going to march to the Capitol, and it wasn't even certifying that day, and we're going to have a wild time, and I'm going to lead you there. And I didn't go, but they went and did a tenth of what was done January 6th. You'd be doing this interview with me if you got permission from the warden at whatever jail I was in, because I would have been arrested for inciting a riot, which is a criminal act. Donald Trump did not endorse the march. He keynoted at the rally, instructed them to march to the Capitol. This is criminal behavior as a result of what they did. These are people that when we were marching and continue to march saying Black Lives Matter, that were arguing Blue Lives Matter, they caused the death of five of the Blue Lives. Capitol Police died. And when the Capitol Police relatives went to the Senate and said that our people, one of them said, I, I think it was the mother, or one of them said, my son was a Republican and voted for Trump. Please have a commission to look into it. You say no. How do you look at the mother of a Capitol policeman who lost his life protecting you and tell her you're not going to look into it? That's the kind of ruthlessness Donald Trump is infested in this country, and it must be confronted, and it must be defeated. Yes. However, we have a bigger problem now. The New York Times reported last week that 15% of Americans believe in the main assertions of QAnon, including the fact that there's a Satanistic cabal running this country that needs to be removed by violent force if necessary. How do you counter against extremism in any way if this is the baseline for what these voters believe, for what these Trump followers believe? You've got to hold them accountable when they go over the line and go from the QAnon theories to putting criminal violent behavior into practice. It is dangerous to all of us. When you have, and I read the Times before, 15% is accurate uh, according to their account or assessment. If you have people thinking like that and act upon that in a way that is not prosecuted and disciplined, their ranks will increase and we will end up with total bedlam. We cannot be in any way reluctant to stand up and be firm against this kind of madness. I don't know how to get through to these people. You would think after everything that's happened to me that people would start to understand just how crazy this notion is and step away. You may not like Joe Biden's policies, and that's okay, but a a satanic, cabalistic, pedophile run government, and you got to say to yourself, now you have Marjorie Taylor Greene out on the stump with this other, you know, pedophile himself, Matt Gates turning around and, and spewing this bullshit, and then people aren't just laughing at it. It's, if this was on Saturday Night Live, you would laugh. But since it's real, it's just not funny. It's dangerous. It's dangerous, and it is shown as dangerous. We're talking about real people that. I'm talking about people that protected this country, that protected the capital of this country, that had flags on their sleeves, on their uniform, died. This is real. This is not a 
maybe this could get out of hand. It has gotten out of hand, and we have to deal with it. Let, let me say this because I know we're almost out of time. I also think people need to understand that as one that has known you down through the years, the fact that you would stand up and your family have to go through what you went through because you refuse to continue to in any way, shape, or form compromise what you believe to be right should not go unnoticed because you could have, the man was president of the United States. You could have gone along and done a lot of different ways, but you said, no, I'm, whatever was done wrong, I'm going to say that. Whatever was done right, I'm going to say that. And nothing is more difficult to be able to explain that to your wife and your children who stood by you. And that's why I wanted to do uh, this with you, because uh, as as, as reported uh, in some of the press, you and I had breakfast a couple of times at the Regency, and I watched you wrestle with who Michael Cohen really was. And you discovered found out and showed who you really were that you were not going to go along with untruths and whatever untruths have been told, you were going to say, we did wrong there. And I think that you ought to be saluted for that and people need to understand that. We've all made mistakes, but it's the biggest unpardonable mistake is when you can't admit it and when you can't correct it. And I think that with you, I really admire your family. Your son used to call me when you were away. And the, the strength they showed I think history will reward. Well, thank you, Reverend. You've been a part of my life for, like I said, over two decades. And so while we're now coming to the end of this, I have one last question for you. And this is really a testament to you. Over the past year, if not longer, we've seen just way too many black men and women killed by gun violence and law enforcement and so on. And I've tried to have you come on to the show. I've tried to speak to you. But you're always somewhere giving a eulogy and asking for all of this to stop. I mean, how many eulogies have you given and what needs to be done to just stop this senseless loss of life? Because it's something you and I have been talking about now, going back to our first, first meeting in 1999. 99, uh, when uh, we were dealing with the issue of Amadou Diallo, the young uh, West African that was killed 41 shots at him. In the Bronx, I must have done 30 or 40 uh, police-related uh, uh, eulogies, including this year, in June. Uh, I, I've done about three this year. It will only stop when we have laws that say to policemen that all police are not bad, even most are not. But if you break the law, you'll be held accountable. What stopped segregation? The Civil Rights Act, the law changed where you could not discriminate legally. It didn't mean people changed their hearts, but they could not do it legally. Police must be held accountable to the law, and that is what is good for everybody. Well, let's just hope that all of the senseless loss of life stops because there's nothing, nothing worse than having to give a eulogy for, for what, right? Because somebody sees another man in distress with an, with an officer or anyone's knee on their neck, right? And the guy's begging for his life. And when, that image will haunt me for the rest of my life, as it should haunt every decent human being on this planet. And the fact that our former president couldn't even utter the man's name, 
Yeah. Right? And I just find it absolutely despicable. And it's one of the reasons why I do this podcast, because I'm trying to, on each and every one of these episodes, to convince one person, just one, that Trumpism has to go and we have to return to a country of right and decency and humanity and helping one another instead of trying to subjugate one another. You know, when, when I, I did this year in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, the eulogy for Andrew Brown Jr. shot in the back of his head by police. About two weeks before that, uh, this Dante Wright eulogy, which was 10 miles from the courthouse where the George Floyd trial. When I look at families and I look at a dead body, both of these men younger than me, this is personal to me. These are things that you sleep at night and you see the body. I do this because I look at that and say, that could be my kid. That could be me. And I'm fighting because it means something to me. I stay in touch with these families. 99, uh, when we, we just talked about it, Miss Diallo, I call her every Mother's Day, every Christmas, and every holiday, because I know there's a missing seat at the table. She was not some perk for me to use at a march. She was a human being that lost her son. Every victim family that I fought for, we stay in touch. They watch my kids grow up. And I remember, uh, uh, and I'll close on this, Michael, when I was coming out of the cemetery last year in June, after having the committal of the body to uh, uh, George Floyd, and the young man that traveled with me from Nash Action Network looked at me, and he said, you know, I saw you tearing up when you were committing the body. And I looked at him and I said, you know, the day that it doesn't bother you and that this is just another event is the day you ought to get out of activism. I've been doing this for decades. It still bothers me, and I'm glad it does, because it is not something that I use to just do something in the public eye. I believe in this, because I grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and I realized it could have been me. By the grace of God, it wasn't. So I'm going to use the time God gave me to do it for others. Well, Rev, I'll give you one. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming on Mea Culpa. It's really good to see you. And um, I hope to see you very, very soon. And love to your family. The same. Thank you, Rev. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In looking back at my conversation with Reverend Al, I had to stop and shudder when he recognized Trump's behavior as the same as the old mafia dons who used to pace around the neighborhood in their bathrobes acting insane to duck an indictment. The more I watched Trump in the past week, based on all that I know about the man, the more that I am beginning to convince myself that he may in fact be trying to cop an insanity plea. The man certainly knows or has been advised of what the New York DA and Attorney General will likely indict him for on his past criminal behavior. This doesn't even begin to touch his election tampering in the state of Georgia. Whatever is happening, the man does not and cannot go to prison. He will die before he does a day inside, or he will simply disappear. His wealth allowing him to simply evaporate into the former Soviet Union to become a permanent guest of Vladimir Putin. But even this is far-fetched. It is so much easier to cop an insanity plea. The world already thinks the man has gone batshit insane. On most days, I think the man has gone insane. And that's now where we need to be careful. 
Trump has succeeded in politics by working the margins. He will do the same with the criminal justice system and stay just one hair over the side of mentally fit. The more he goes into public with his pants on backwards and mumbles and dips into the insanity pit of Michael Flynn, the more he bolsters his own credibility for being Meshuggana. But if we let it go too far, he will pull that string out indefinitely and live in a limbo of his own making. The time is now to corner the rat and close the ring on Trump. More newspapers like the Boston Globe must speak up for his criminal prosecution. And we must not let his excesses become pathologized to the point of insanity where he is allowed to skate back to Palm Beach and be attended to by a nurse for the rest of his life. But that may be the bargain we'll have to make. He loses what's left of his dignity and his sanity and must do a Vincent de Cingiganti for the rest of his life. It's hard to swallow, but I can see the logic. These indictments need to fall before it's too late. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa. Nothing but the truth. Hey, movie lovers. Who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. This is my mayor,